We're going to talk about very basic stuff about anemia today, and next week we're going to talk more about anemia in children and uh, pregnancy and special circumstances. So today is just really, really basic stuff. So um, estimates are that around five to six percent of the population has, suffers from anemia in the U.S. Worldwide numbers as high as thirty percent, depending upon where one looks at the data. Uh, suggests that uh, worldwide anemia is a much more of a chronic, uh, difficult problem than it is here. But in the U.S., estimates are about 10 million people with iron deficiency anemia. Most of those folks who have iron deficiency anemia do so because of menstrual blood loss, although about 20 to 30 percent of folks with iron deficiency are men. So um, iron deficiency is much more common as you get to be older, and uh, you typically see it in individuals above the age of 65 to 70 as a common condition, as well as those who are newborns and younger infants. And African Americans suffer disproportionately from this problem. So basically when you look at anemia, you, most of you do two things. One is you're taught to do a reticulocyte count to look for whether or not there's increased turnover or decreased production. And that's what the reticulocyte production index tells you. If there's decreased production, then there's usually something wrong with the bone marrow. If there's increased turnover, there's usually something going on in the periphery. The bone marrow is still able to respond until it may be overwhelmed by the problem that's going on in the periphery. So again, we're going to put these slides online. So I'm not going to go through every little thing on these slides. But um, the, the decreased uh, Production basically is divided into anemias that are normocytic, macrocytic, or microcytic. The increased uh, turnover anemias, in my book, are divided into what's happened to the RDW. Is the RDW wide or not? I don't know whether you guys use RDW or not, but if you have cells that are being chewed up, the RDW can tell you that they're small cells and maybe normal cells, or if the patient's turning out a lot of reticulocytes, trying to match things, then the RDW would be big on the upper side. So you guys use RDW or not? You should. You should be thinking about reticulocyte count, macrocytosis, microcytosis, normocytosis, and using RDW to sort of help you decide which problem is likely to be present. Okay, so if you have a normal RDW and a normal MCV, then typically what you're dealing with is uh, the need to examine a peripheral blood smear and see what the cells look like, just to be sure there's not a wide variety of cells, chewed up cells, helmet cells, things like that, suggesting that the patient's going through hemolysis. The most common thing we see uh, here is blood loss for this problem, because people with acute blood loss don't have the time to change their, their uh, size of their red blood cells. So most of the time you're gonna see an anemia with, in the hospital an anemia with a normal MCV, whereas on the outpatient side, you may see the MCV be abnormal or not. Um, just remember that internal damage does not lead to, bleeding does not lead to iron deficiency. The iron is still there. It's not lost. So I think there's some confusion about whether or not you need to replace iron when you're dealing with people that have internal bleeding. And that you can sequester iron in the form of uh, hemosiderosis or good pasture syndrome where iron is actually deposited in cells elsewhere in the body. If you have a low MCV, and, and you need to check the RDW and see if there's a scattering of the cells. In this 
slide, obviously these are not only uh, microcytic cells, but they're hypochromic cells. There's not enough iron in these cells. So if you have a low one, the number one thing to do after you've looked at this is to check for iron, check the iron studies and see what the, whether or not the iron level itself is low, adding the TIBC and whether or not the ferritin is high or low. If you look at receiver operator curves, that is how, what test is best in any test that you take on a board exam or something like that, ferritin's gonna be the right answer. But because it's an acute phase reaction, I'm not certain in the hospital that it is the best test. In the hospital, you're sort of stuck. A, a, an iron level and a TIBC may give you better guidance than the ferritin. So be cautious about that. Um, if you don't really know, then people often just give a trial of iron to see if it will make things be better. The other big thing we see in the hospitalized patients are anemia of chronic disease. I'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. If the iron level is normal, you have to be careful that the patient doesn't have iron uh, overload, actually, and have things like thalassemia with recurrent transfusions, uh, things like that. So on this side of the, of the slide are things that lead to high or uh, normal or high ferritin. I, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to see some of the uh, uh, other attendees here. Supposedly hemochromatosis affects about two to 4% of the population. Hem hemochromatosis is a genetic problem, you can check the genes. I think I've found one or two cases in my whole career. I don't know, do you guys see much hemochromatosis? I have about half a dozen in my practice. Half a dozen or so, all right. So if you have somebody that has, what, what's the physical complaint of patients with hemochromatosis, number one? Osteoarthritis is number one. Hemochromatosis can affect any organ. The, the, the liver and heart are the two that are commonly affected. But if you have an older patient who looks plethoric and um, has uh, a problem with osteoarthritis, don't just blow it off to that. Think about whether or not there could be a family history of any blood disorders and make sure you get a good family history because it is a genetically determined disease. All right, we're gonna talk a little bit about hemolytic anemia and these would be folks who typically have a wide RDW and a low MCV. And there are many, many causes of hemolytic anemia. The acquired causes are on this side. I just remind people that people who are exercising a lot, uh, teenagers who get into cross country and those sorts of things may develop a traumatic hemolytic anemia. These, they're not iron deficiency because the iron is still in the body, but you have to be careful about what they're doing, whether this is the problem that's leading them to have a problem with anemia. And those who have a mechanical heart valve can have anemia based on the um, red blood cells being chewed up as they go past the heart valve. What would, what would be a hint that that's the problem? Well, the stuff inside the red blood cell would be higher in the blood. So those things are potassium, LDH, and uh, AST, things like that. Things that will go up because the patients hemolyzing their cells. So you would, you would see probably helmet cells, spur cells, things like that, the fragments on a red blood cell smear, but we don't see red blood cell smears anymore, which is a shame, because um, sometimes they, they actually do tell you exactly what the problem is. Um, you, on, in Pittsburgh, you can still see occasional rare case of cold hemoglobinuria, which is induced by people who, who are sometimes homeless or exposed to excessive cold. Then their hereditary disorders are things like uh, spherocytosis and lymphocytosis and avalocytosis. G6PD, which is a problem of boys, and a pyruvate kinase deficiency. We've had one I know of at, the fam at Lawrenceville many, many years ago. And then recently we've gotten a couple of newborns that have 
Bart's hemoglobin. We'll talk about thalassemias next week. The, the Coombs test, direct Coombs, indirect, the difference is the direct test, you're looking for antibody already deposited directly on the surface of the patient's red blood cells. The indirect test, you're looking for antibodies that are floating around the patient's blood. So for a maternal uh, fetal mismatch in blood, which, which test would the mother, would you want on the mother? Indirect. And on the baby, you'd want the direct. Okay? Um, cold and warm antibody uh, problem, anemias. So uh, warm antibodies can be induced by things like viral infections, neoplasia, things like that. And the treatment for that issue is that uh, the patient's already warm, so you can do things like prednisone, plasmapheresis, things like that to get rid of the antibodies. Now, cold antibodies are typically induced by infections, and mycoplasma pneumonia is the classic one that causes cold antibody production. You can actually do a bedside test for this. If you take the patient's blood and put it in the purple top tube, stick it in ice, and if you look at it and turn it on its side, you'll actually see lots of red blood cells going by because the cold antibodies have caused the cells to coagulate. So um, unfortunately for that problem, there's not much to do except wait to get rid of the antibodies, which takes three to six months uh, as, as the infection goes away. And if the patient is really having bad problems, the tuximab can be used. Let's talk a little bit about iron. Uh, there's a lot of information about absorbing iron now. Hepcidin, we don't have a, a good test for hepcidin yet. It's a protein on the surface of the, of the cells lining the intestinal tract that allow you to absorb iron. And if it is decreased, you absorb more iron. If it's increased, it blocks iron absorption. So patients who are, have acute inflammation may have an increased hepcidin and drop their iron absorption, which uh, can lead to a problem such as anemia of chronic disease, at least one of the, the, the thoughts as to how people become chronically anemic uh, from that problem. Dietary factors do make a difference. Um, using vitamin C along with iron sometimes is helpful in terms of absorption, and ferrous forms are absorbed better than ferric forms. Strangely enough, it's the ferric form in your blood that does the work for you, so it has to be further reduced uh, when it is, uh, after it is absorbed. There are a few things that interfere with iron absorption. Um, I didn't put very many on this list. There, there are actually more than that, but the interesting thing is that calcium and whole grains and tea uh, may all cause some reduced iron absorption. So in those patients who are heavily on the diet that contains those items, you may need to give them a little additional iron using 50 milligrams a day is enough. You don't need to supplement them with, with a total a large dose of iron. Uh, etiology of iron deficiency, chronic blood loss, we all know the problem there, but interestingly, recently people have connected H. pylori infection to chronic iron deficiency, so you need to think about that. Is the patient having any kind of gastrointestinal complaint? Um, Meckles we'll talk about for children next week. The most common cause in the U.S. is heavy menses or uh, uh, menorrhagia or mentorrhagia. Uh, bleeding when you don't want that to occur, and the loss of iron without uh, enough iron back in the diet. Uh, hookworm infestation, we, we don't see much hookworm in Pittsburgh because people don't go bare feet, but in the south, you can still see hookworm infestation. And uh, other problems like celiac disease, we look for a lot here, I know, I'm not sure how often you find it. Gastric bypass surgery, uh, duodenal ulcers, familial polyposis, all of these things can lead to decreased absorption and chronic blood loss. 
Okay, so here are a few things to look for for iron deficiency. Clearly, the nails are pale, right? Look at these two hands. There's something wrong with this couple. Either she's iron deficient or he's smoking. <laughs> um, so he could have something like Guy's box syndrome with a high red blood cell count where she could be iron deficiency. This is Kylonikia here. The there's a hole in the nail, a dimple in the nail. This is pulitis, and this is glossitis of the tongue. Interestingly enough, about half of the patients in the U.S. who are iron deficient do not have iron deficiency anemia. So, um, some problems would demand checking on iron level anyway. Things like restless leg syndrome may respond to iron even if the iron level is normal. So, um, that's another one of those things. Does a normal level mean it's normal for you or is it normal for a group? of people, and you get into these huge debates about whether the iron level is normal for the population, but not normal for the individual that has that level. So sometimes a trial of iron to help with problems like left restless leg syndrome uh, is useful. The alopecia rarely uh, is on its own, but here's an article about iron deficiency without anemia that talks about all the symptoms that patients can suffer from when they have that problem. Uh, lab findings, iron deficiency, anemia, decreased iron, increased GIBC, uh, in, decreased FE saturation, decreased ferritin, decreased MCV. Platelets are usually increased because the bone marrow is trying to turn out reticulocytes, uh, and the bone marrow has a reduced iron stores. That's the, the gold standard test to do a bone marrow and stain for iron and see if it's reduced. Here's a table again that's going to be online of how to replace iron, and uh, lately a lot of people are giving intravenous iron instead of using oral iron, my advice is that uh, you, you forget your own experience and try oral iron anyway, even though you've had lots of patients who don't tolerate it. It's still something that you should uh, try first before you put people on all this intravenous uh, medication. And the reason is primarily the expense. Um, and I'm not sure that the oral stuff does any worse than the IV stuff, even though um, people seem to like uh, getting IVs these days. Uh, I, I, my son lives in Scarsdale, New York, and um, interestingly enough, individuals there are going to the, these practitioners who are injecting IV vitamins into their veins uh, once a month. Go figure. Don't know. Dr. Yes. Can you go back to our last slide? What formulation would you recommend, and how should they take it for compliance? And yeah, most people most people start off with ferrous sulfate or ferrous gluconate, uh, and just give it a try and see. And then, and, and, but tell the patient, you know, based on your experience, which one you like better. I, actually, I find Nitrex is the best, but it's a little bit more expensive. Yes, Rich. I would also suggest starting just at daily, once daily. Yeah, so that's a big issue too, is, is is there less GI upset when you take a lower dose or not? And uh, there are papers on both sides of the coin here. Um, so I think it depends on how symptomatic the patient is. If the patient is not symptomatic at all and you're dealing with a low level of iron deficiency, say a hematocrit of 31 or 30, you're probably right. But if you're dealing with somebody that has a hematocrit of 20 and they have coronary artery disease and you're trying to replace it quickly, I would still recommend it three times a day. 
Um, okay, uh, anemia of chronic disease. Um, you can see almost any finding in anemia of chronic disease. Uh, those are some of the problems, but here is a way to tell these two things apart. The TIBC is usually high in iron deficiency anemia, and it's usually low in patients that have anemia of chronic disease because they're chronically ill, and you're trying to make a protein that's not there. So um, the saturation may be fine with anemia of chronic disease, despite the fact that both the iron and the TIBC are low. The ferritin is usually low in iron deficiency, and because it's a it's an immune response, uh, an inflammatory response, it's usually high in anemia of chronic disease. So these are the two things that you should look for, the TIBC and the ferritin to help you know the difference between these two things. Um, you can give a trial of iron if you don't know if a patient has chronic disease and you're worried that they also have iron deficiency, you can give a trial of iron and check the retic count in 10 to 14 days to see if it's increased. It may be that you need to use something like erythropoietin to stimulate the bone marrow in these folks. Usually you get an erythropoietin level and see if it's below 500. If it is, you can give a trial of erythropoietin, although we don't, we, when this came out, we were all doing it in our offices, but then I don't know why. It didn't seem to help people live longer, so um, some of the guidelines came down that it should primarily be given by hematologists and no longer by folks in primary care. I think you can still do this, but I'm not sure um, what you have to do to go through it. Does any of you guys do it, give it anymore? No. Okay, yeah. So uh, you probably would have to talk to hematology to be able to, to, to start using erythropoietin again. It, it unfortunately also uh, had the, a consequence of a higher mortality from cardiac problems when it was given out willy-nilly. So um, with anemia, chronic disease, and iron deficiency, we don't know whether IV iron will work or not. It's not been a standard uh, of treatment so far. Okay, we got five minutes, and then we're going to take questions. So, uh, if you have a high MCV, the RDW may also be high because you have cells that are bigger. Uh, here is a macrocyte. Then you're dealing primarily with B12 and folate deficiency, or a dysplastic problem, uh, or increased reticulocytes because of something wrong uh, with the patient's. Um, blood loss or something like that where they will dump out a lot of reticulocytes in response to an anemia. So uh, what, let's talk a little bit about B12 and folate first. Anybody know who this guy is? Probably not. Um, he's a Nobel Prize winner and he won the Nobel Prize for uh, figuring out that if you fed liver to people that have pernicious anemia, you could overcome the problems of pernicious anemia and get their hematocrit to go back to normal. And that's a basic lesson for all of us. That was back in the 20s, which is, even if there's something wrong with you, if you give people enough oral B12, you can overcome the deficit. Um, and that's, that's what we're finding, uh, we're back to today. Um, actually, this is George Whipple, and he interviewed me when I went to medical school. I was a little afraid, but... Um, <laughs> I walked into his office and we spent an hour together and he talked to me about hunting. He talked about the difference between quail dogs and pheasant dogs. And uh, I, I went back to my 45th medical school reunion this year and actually was back in his office sitting at his desk. He was a, it's, it was funny, in those days, there was so much that changing that you could be a giant in medicine and he was a giant in medicine. Okay, so B12, you eat it and it gets broken down whatever you eat and it gets excreted in the bile every day. 
if you have enough acid in your stomach, you break it down. If you have intrinsic factor, it can bind to that, and then it gets uh, also you need bicarbonate and pepsin. The pepsin gets rid of a protein that's on the surface of the B12 intrinsic factor that's interfering with its absorption. Uh, the bicarb helps it be absorbed and has to be absorbed in the terminal ileum. So that's the problem. You need B12, you need intrinsic factor, you need bicarb, you need trypsin, and you need a terminal ileum. It's easy to get to be B12 deficient. B12 deficiency can produce any neurologic symptom on the planet. Megaloblastic anemia, anything, any problem can be from B12 deficiency. Uh, the reason for that is that most nerves uh, have a myelin sheath and B12 is responsible for helping lay down that myelin sheath. It doesn't really do anything itself. It's just a switch engine in the switchyard. A ton of different things here. This is, what's the name of this? Common to people who eat raw fish from Norway and Sweden and things like that. Causes B12 deficiency because it absorbs it in the intestine before it gets to your terminal ileum. It's a tapeworm. I was thinking of the Latin name. It's Typhilobotrum bottom. I don't know why I started doing that, but that's what it is. So if you get somebody from who's from Norway or something and they like fish, um, be, sure, be certain they don't have something simple like this you can kill and get rid of the problem. Causes of folate deficiency, extremely rare. Pregnancy, rapid growth, and uh, hemolysis, which uh, uses up your folate reserves. You don't have much in the way of folate reserves in the body. By the way, on a dietary basis, to become deficient in B12 takes 20 to 30 years. On a pernicious anemia basis with no intrinsic factor, it takes four to five years. That's the amount of B12 you lose in the bile, and if you don't reabsorb any of it because you don't have intrinsic factor, um, you, you uh, become deficient more quickly. If you reabsorb it uh, as, uh, when you have intrinsic factor, but you're not getting it in the diet, you get this internal circulation and it takes a long time to become deficient. It takes roughly five days of salad to replace folic acid. Um, the methylmonic acid and, and plasma homocysteine, the trouble with plasma homocysteine is that, that both of these deficiencies cause it to be elevated, whereas only uh, B12 deficiency causes methylmonic acid be elevated, and that's why we do the MMA when you're really looking to confirm that your low B12 level is in fact due to um, uh, pernicious anemia or B12 problem. Does anybody know where B12 is carried, by the way, in the serum? How does it get transported? It's actually inside of uh, uh, neutrophils, and so um, it is a marker actually for things like acute myelogenous leukemia, it'll be sky high in individuals who have who have leukemic uh, problems. So uh, it's not very useful because um, by then the CBC is abnormal anyway. Uh, okay, this is an oral uh, cobalamin absorption curves. If you give one milligram, you absorb, absorb about half of it. If you give a thousand milligrams, you're only absorbing about 1.3%, but you still absorb enough to overcome almost any form of B12 deficiency. Um, this is what we do when we get an injection. If you inject 1,000 micrograms, about 150 micrograms actually gets incorporated into your metabolic pathway. So this is the problem. This is cool. People love these injections. 1,000 milligrams every month. 
This is why they like it. Look at that red. I feel better just looking at it. <laughs> so I, I don't know if it's a Yeah, I know. I know. So, so there are three stages of medicine. The first stage is when you give B12 only to those people who are B12 deficient. Uh, the second stage of medicine is when you give B12 to anybody who wants it. And the third stage of medicine is when you give it to yourself. <laughs> That's it. Questions? Yes. I have noticed that uh, there are certain like generations of preceptors that refer to anemia in terms of the hematocrit. Yes. Is there anything intrinsic about hematocrit levels that is more useful for describing anemia? Yeah, I, I think the basic definition is having a low hematocrit, right? So that's the basic definition. So uh, the issue is when do you get worried about it? At what point do you get worried about it? And, and it is, there's no point of being worried about it until it's about half normal. Um, so you're saying as opposed to hemoglobin? Correct. Just like the, the difference between like the hemoglobin and the other? Yeah. We used to measure hematocrit by spinning The, yeah, the hemoglobin and hematocrit are roughly three times the hemoglobin is what the hematocrit is, roughly. But if you have abnormal cells, then the hematocrit can change. But the hemoglobin level, um, you, you may still have a relatively high hemoglobin level. So that ratio will vary depending upon what the problem is. I don't think it's worth differentiating. I think you can use either one you want. But I don't know, the other attendings have other opinions. Yeah, there's no, I know of no paper that suggests that if you don't use the hemoglobin, you're, you're a bad doctor. So uh, if you use hemoglobin, seven is a number at which one would transfuse patients. If you have coronary artery disease or something like that, then nine to 10 would be the level at which one would transfuse patients, if it's lower than that. What else? Yes. How Luke. sensitive and specific are MCDs in stratifying into the different groups that we were looking at? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I think that they, the, if you see an MCV that is abnormal by a point or two, uh, or you're asking should, should we be running after that and tracking it down, I would say if the hematocrit is normal, uh, you could probably just watch it. But if you see an MCV that's 105 or 110, then you're making a mistake not to go after it, even if the patient is not anemic yet.